Welcome, welcome, welcome to a new world coming. To a new world coming. To a new world coming. Hello there. Welcome to the ninth episode of New World Coming, a series of interviews produced by the People's Forum. For this installment, James Early speaks with Michaela Nando Eskog, a popular educator, organizer, and researcher based in South Africa. Mikaela is an editor at the Tricontinental Institute of Social Research, an institute that seeks to bridge academic production and political and social movements, not only to analyze the current crises we face, but to help popular movements and organizations strategize and advance their struggles. In this episode, they discuss the history of national liberation and socialist movements on the continent, the lessons we must learn from this history, and what Pan-Africanism must look like today to combat the multiple and interlocking crises of capitalism we're facing. Michaela also talks about what the rise of a multipolar world means for African countries in choosing their own path and clears up the numerous myths about what kind of partnerships and investment opportunities countries outside of the West offer in the region. Finally, Michaela discusses her involvement in and the process of building up the African regional articulation of the International People's Assembly, a global network of organizations, trade unions, political parties, culture collectives, and media projects. Subscribe to our YouTube channel to see more educational and cultural content and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook to stay updated on future programming and episodes. Thank you and enjoy the interview. Welcome to this edition of New World Coming, a political education interview series. My name is James Early and I am your host. Africa. Africa looms large in the imagination of humankind being the cradle of civilization. But Africa has also suffered the disparaging racist commentary uh, to rationalize the exploitation of human beings in the European Atlantic slave trade and the exploitation of the national resources of Africa. I've had leading communists in some countries say to me, James, we are all Afro-descendants because Africa is the cradle of civilization, but which is clearly a way of blunting uh, the issue of racism and racial identities uh, and the various ideological struggles uh, that have emerged from a racialized capitalism to deal with the immiseration of working people in particular sometimes taking an exclusive nationalist perspective, other times taking a more progressive social democratic perspective. But we are reminded that Africa also embraced in its anti-colonial struggle the issues of socialism, uh, first looking at the historical pre-colonial formations of African societies in which humanistic perspectives of collectivism and common concern of Ujama, uh, brotherhood, sisterhood, Ubuntu, I am because you are, those humanistic perspectives that took on an issue of national liberation and linked it then to working class struggles uh, in the context of capitalism and the immiseration of working people despite what their linguistic or cultural or national identities might have been. In this first part of the 21st century, Africa reemerges in very large ways uh, across the continent, within the continent of Africa, with the emergence of new progressive movements, 
and some explicit socialist movements and party formations. Africa also looms large in the context of the African diaspora. When we look at one of the largest African descended populations, in fact, the second largest African descended population outside of Nigeria, uh, in Brazil, for example, where over 100 million people self-identified uh, in the national census as black and our mixed race, uh, where people are still relating to deities from Benin and Nigeria, or with the recent election in Colombia uh, of an Afro-Colombian vice president in Francia Marquez under the slogan of Ubuntu. We also see it in the context of the community of Latin American and Caribbean nations, where the issues of reparations and the connection to the transatlantic uh, slavery and the immiseration that came from that, uh, which still holds fast in the indices of poverty, disease, incarceration, abuse of women. So Africa today has emerged also in the multipolar world with the emergence of China and Russia competing uh, with NATO and particularly Western Europe as it re-enters through military processes uh, in Africa and as Russia and China are involved in development projects uh, in Africa. A lot of controversy, a lot of misinformation, a lot of assumptions. Today we are very excited to have someone who can give us some insight on these intracontinental developments of progressive and socialist movements and the connection uh, to the multipolar world that has emerged and also connections to these discussions in the African diaspora. Uh, we are very excited to have Michaela Ando Escog. Welcome. Uh, from the Tricontinental uh, Institute for Social Research, please introduce yourself. Tell us who you are, what your work is before we get into some of these content questions. Sure, thank you so much. I'm really excited to be joining you all and I'm glad that we're having this conversation at this particular moment in, in time. So uh, I'm Michaela. I am a researcher and editor at the Tricontinental Institute for Social Research, which we've been operational for now five years. It's actually our five year anniversary this year. And we've been producing a lot of really important um, intellectual and popular material that serves social justice movements, trade unions, political parties who come from historically left traditions and who have been, whether in the last few years, whether over 30 years or even longer, been organizing against a lot of the social and economic and political injustices that they face in their society. We have four offices. I, I work primarily in the interregional office as the connection between Africa and the world. But we also have an office in Buenos Aires, in Argentina, Sao Paulo, in Brazil, uh, Delhi, in India, and Johannesburg, in South Africa. And we have awesome materials. I'm probably going to plug them a bit later. I just had a few here um, that are super easy to read, all free to download. So um, we really invite anyone who's watching to check us out and check the material we've produced. But before I joined Tricontinental, I've been primarily working in an organization called Pan-Africanism Today, which is the regional coordination of the International People's Assembly, where we work in the African region to coordinate efforts around uh, solidarity struggles, connecting social movements with other movements across the continent, popular education work, collective political campaigns around shared and common issues. And this has kind of been in the making for the last six or so years. 
with our kind of political direction coming from groups like the National Union of Metal Workers of South Africa, who I primarily have worked with in the education department, as well as the Socialist Movement of Ghana, the Socialist Party of Zambia. We work with Tanzanian peasants in Viwata, one of the biggest network of smallholder uh, farmers in Tanzania. And so uh, part of my work still and prior to Tricon has been working within the secretariat around issues of research, education, media and different international work. And then the last two things maybe I just want to plug is, um, you know, as an activist, your hats are many. So I also am involved in No Cold War, which is an international peace platform where we basically are trying to push back against the rhetoric that is pushing for war, for militarization, for geopolitical divisions based on competitive trade relationships, and rather for one based on mutual cooperation um, and peace, of course. And lastly, I also am a member of the Dongsheng Collective, which is a group of international researchers who are, we came around around March in 2020 or May in 2020, we were formed. And it was precisely because we were getting so much, um, you know, anti-China sentiment, anti-China propaganda, that it wasn't really clear what is this thing called China? What is the socialism that they're trying to develop? How do the people feel about it? What have been the results of the different processes and institutions they've been building over the last, you know, over 70 years since the 1949 uh, independence? And I specifically work with one of our colleagues, Amadeus Musumali from Zambia on, we recently launched a new podcast called The Crane, an Africa-China podcast, where we also trying to have a bit of a more focused discussion on what the China-Africa relationship has looked like, what is involved, what's at stake. And for us, of course, um, if nobody, anybody hadn't noticed, we wanna provide a socialist perspective, a, a class analysis of what's really going on rather than some of the more superficial analyses that we see that are very data rich, but not necessarily getting us to the root of the cause um, or uh, the kind of net, like fulcrum of really what's at stake for African people in their struggle for self-determination, defending their sovereignty, territorial unity and integrity. Very good. I hope we can come back to touch on some of those issues and have ways in which we will put in um, our final edit for our audiences to really be able to follow up on some of these publications and broadcasts to continue their political education about Africa. I'm of a generation where uh, Africa south of the Sahara uh, was a, a framework, uh, uh, I would say a very highly racialized uh, framework in, in many ways, a framework that obscured the fact that uh, the great majority of, um, of African countries uh, have a huge influence of the Islamic religion, uh, no matter what physiologically they may look like. Uh, but I'm really interested in finding out what is the relationship within the continent between what has been historically looked at as North Africa and the formations of progressive social movements and socialist parties and socialist governance with what historically has been called Africa south of the, of the Sahara. Would you give our audience some sense of, of what current developments are on the continent as a whole with these progressive and socialist developments? So, I mean, I do have to look a little bit to the past before I can totally answer some of the present, which is that uh, this division, of course, there are practical 
issues to it of, you know, largely the North African Maghreb region speaks Arabic and, you know, Southern Africa, it's a mix of English and indigenous languages, West Africa, French, that's always going to be a challenge. But I think some of the historic traditions, radical traditions that we are drawing on today comes precisely during the national liberation period where, you know, the very first independent states like Ghana and Egypt were part of those leading forces who were showing us the importance of connecting so-called North Africa with Sub-Saharan Africa. And those kinds of historic moments, many of them have been lost to the younger generation, but I think that there's a revival and an interest in history and what those kinds of um, engagements and relationships, the kind of outcomes they gave. And, you know, with, with NASA and Kwame Nkrumah, the first leaders of Egypt and Ghana, respectively, it was really important because they came together around the non-alignment movement in the 1950s after the 1955 Bandung conference in Indonesia that gathered various forces who were anti-imperialist, who had a commitment to decolonization. And so that, I think, set the tone for the movements to come around the fact that we have a shared project and it's decolonization. It's uh, recreating our societies on our own terms without necessarily having to bend the knee to the West or any other groups. And so that was the first iteration that really showed the possibility. And so we draw on some of those traditions and it's enabled us to connect with, for example, so contemporarily, um, part of the work of Pan-Africanism today was we had to just go around and meet different groups. We had to go and call people, talk to people, you hear about a socialist formation or somebody doing key strategic work in working class or mass movements on the continent, we were getting our friends to check them out. We were going there as well. And what happened is in 2016, we first met in Lusaka, Zambia, different formations. And two of the key formations that joined us was the Democratic Way in Morocco, which is a Marxist-Leninist party in Morocco and leading many of the struggles right now, as well as the Workers' Party in Tunisia who's also been pushing the organization around, you know, pushing back against the president's referendum that essentially would allow him to continue to have greater executive power in Tunisia. And in 2017, we organized our second conference or meeting of these progressive forces in Tunis. And that was a big thing for us as we initially started in Lusaka because it's close to, you know, the heart of Africa or the center of Africa. And it's where for practical reasons we could host it but then to have it in Tunis was not purely symbolic but it's a show of of investment and 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 deep deep um commitment to wanting to connect the different continents that historical backdrop i think is very important particularly for this generation um in fighting neoliberal capitalism and its various um sociological expressions i might say whether one is woman whether one is lgbtq or black or indigenous or transgendered, um, and where there's a lot of confusion. But there's another historical reference I think important I'd like to get your views on. And that is, for example, uh, in 57 with the emergence of Ghana as the first sub-Saharan anti-colonial victory, early 60s, what, 61 or so with Tanganyika, with Julius uh, Nyeri. Uh, this issue of pre-colonial socialist perspectives within African mass societies trying to extract from those histories um, of a new self-determination in, in a contemporary context, not trying to go back uh, to pre-colonial Africa, but trying to extract. And so these discussions of, of African socialism uh, that also at some point intersected uh, with a more 
uh, explicit class analysis of capitalism, of capital and working people. Does that factor into Africa today? Um, I think we can look at it from kind of two or three ways. Is one, when we're talking about Kuma, or actually let's say more in terms of Ujama, when Yerera was invoking um, Ujama, even though a lot of people refer to it as a more historic, like the collective past, the collective way of living and being, I am because you are from a pre-colonial period, what we have to keep in mind is despite the like deep penetration of capitalism and imperialism on the African continent, it's still largely an agrarian society. You know, 70% of Africa's uh, agricultural produce is produced by women working in very collective formations. And so that kind of was never erased in the same way that it was erased in, of course, through slavery and the Afro-descendants in various parts of the Americas, where traditions and collective ways of living are totally raised to the ground, right? So we still have a largely uh, rural and agrarian um, society that for the reasons of the kind of harsh neoliberal exploitation that followed in the 80s and 90s has meant that a lot of people have to rely on collective ways of living. If you look at the average working class African child in South Africa, most of them have been raised by their grandmothers and extended family because the parents have to work in the urban centers due to the, the flow of labor and the historic development of capitalism in urban sites. Um, and so one is that we have the fortune of never having truly lost those kinds of traditions and those ways of living um, living very close to your extended family, relying again, many people rely a lot on some form of um, um, homestead agricultural produce to make up for the lack of income. So that's one. Then two, in terms of the actual discussions around African socialism, I think in this period of time, or at least in the last 10 or so years, when I was in university in 2010, 2011 or so, it was considered almost like a, a niche debate, the idea of African socialism, that that was then, it is past. And, and if anyone was going to pick up the question around uh, Pan-Africanism or new ways of living, it would be around Thabo Mbeki's, you know, neoliberal African renaissance. And people took it more, or it had more resonance, and it seemed to be uh, working in terms of the commercialization of this idea of being African. Like now you can wear your cool African garb because it's commercially viable. Um, you know, more people are investing in lavish traditional weddings, which also have their own feudal <laughs> patriarchal elements to it that we also want to revise and we also want to move past. But I think the question of socialism is now finding some form of a emergence and resonance because people are up to their necks with the deep deep inequality that plagues the continent and previously i like i think 20 years ago to talk about socialism people would have think you know this is a, a western thing this is some form of western implantation but more and more because of the kinds of social organizations political parties that are raising the question of socialism it is there's more space coming out but this also has to do of course with the fall of um, 
the Berlin Wall and the end of the, the Soviet Union, where it became a bit of a dirty word to talk about socialism. But now, as we see, you know, people do look to, and that I think is one of the best parts about South Africa, despite its deep sectarianism, we have had a long tradition of socialism because we had a communist party that started in the 1920s, 30s, was super active in the anti-apartheid struggle. I think the Socialist Party in Zambia is probably one of the interesting uh, groups right now because when they're talking about socialism, it's not an academic debate. It, they're also producing um, literacy programs where hundreds of people have been learning to read and write. We've seen them uh, developing agroecological projects where people are trying to understand the world differently and um, go through different educational processes to better understand the world they're in in order to activate their own agency. But I would say that it's only it's only recent and in places like South Africa, it's a little bit more um, normalized to talk about it. But ultimately, there's still a lack of, I hate to use the word penetration, but mass penetration um, that helps, I think, the general population to think about socialism. South Africa, let's, Africa is a very complex uh, continent uh, of languages and cultural expressions, um, uh, economic uh, realities in the context of the dominance of neoliberal capitalism at a global level. Uh, there is a tendency, it seems to me, certainly in the United States, but I would say throughout the Americas, and I, it's very likely in Western Europe with African descendants, many of whom are now parliamentarians, three, four, five generations. Uh, they are not migrants or immigrants. Uh, they are settled in the context of the contemporary development of Europe. There's a lot of romanticization about Africa, the continent, as though that was just one thing. And of course, the anti-apartheid struggle in South Africa captured the imagination of the entire world, I would say, across races, cultures, classes even, um, more liberal elements of even in capitalist society for humanistic reasons were motivated to support this. And so an extraordinary global front um, was built around um, the anti-apartheid struggle uh, in South Africa including the emergence, as you said, of the role of the Communist Party and the anti-apartheid movement, Ramaphosa, the current president, former communist, billionaire. Um, how is this being played out now in the massification of ideology, since people have a familiarity with socialist and communist movements in their real lives? Uh, how is it being played out among the masses of South Africans and uh, now dealing with uh, what the African National Congress has become, and I'll let you describe from your perspective what it has become. I have a very negative perspective of it, but of course I'm not living uh, on the continent of Africa or in South Africa. I mean, we're living in a very tough moment right now in South Africa because, you know, even prior to COVID, there was already a kind of steady economic downturn. Uh, the kind of promises of that Ramaphosa brought, his whole promise was to, you know, reunite the ANC and make it stronger because he has the business acumen to be a billionaire. Um, but within social movements and, you know, working class organizations, in the last, since 2013, so in 2013, there was what they call 2012-2013, there was the NUMSA moment. And it basically was the moment in which the National Union of Metal Workers of South Africa which is one of the biggest trade unions at the time, had 400,000 members, decided to leave the tripartite alliance 
which was made up of the ANC, the African National Congress, the SACP, the Communist Party, as well as COSATU, which is the Congress of African Trade Unions or, or South African Trade Unions. And NUMSA made up the biggest um, membership of COSATU, the Federation. So there was the Federation, the Communist Party and the na national, the Nationalist Party, African National Party. And when they left in 2013, it was on the basis that they can't see how this alliance is advancing working class people's interests. They only had seen, you know, almost a decade of reform, of welcoming the IMF, welcoming the World Bank, of privatization of resources, of reneging on many of the promises that were really at the forefront, especially in the 80s during the a united democratic front which was a front of all different groups coming together to try to push back against apartheid and trade unions played a vital role in community organization and a lot of the membership of the communist party and anc who were doing incredible work were part of the trade union because they were involved in you know the factory floor they were involved in communities but after 94 we almost get a demobilization where there's almost this disassociation from the party with the people and the severance, severing the connection that was so vital not only to that struggle but in any historic moment has been so vital to any successful revolution or transformation of society and so in 2013 when they leave i think it created a very interesting opening um, because they were explicit about you know we want to pursue uh, lines that advance the working class beyond bargaining in for wages and for better work conditions. We want to advance projects outside of our main bread and butter work that will actually build, you know, the education of our membership, that will build spaces like a, a united front outside of us, that will build a revolutionary party, that will build a revolutionary federation. And many gains have been made in the last few years, and part of where um, some of us come in is because they needed more educational support because they were cut off of the networks, international networks, the educational uh, infrastructure prior to leaving the tripartite alliance. And so we see, I think, a, they opened up, I think, a bigger discourse, not only in the bourgeois public sphere, but amongst the membership, because the membership agreed to it. It wasn't the leaders who agreed to leave. It had to go through the different um, working class units, through the shop stewards, through the different factory councils in order for the decision to be made. So it was built on consensus of hundreds and thousands of people, right? And in that moment, we are also seeing in different struggles are escalating, like a lot of um, so-called service delivery struggles were escalating at the time, not necessarily because they were linked, but because of the historic moment, you know, it, it, it was what it was, where people are increasingly protesting for access to electricity, to water, to basic services. And we're seeing more momentum across the country around that. And I think that's where, again, socialism was brought on the table and debates around what should a socialist formation look like? What is the work that needs to be done? What are the organizational structures and processes that we need to build? And after that, you know, groups like Abasali Basem Jondolo, the Shack Dwellers Movement in South Africa, which has been organizing since 2005 around land and housing and dignity, which is their slogan. Um, they occupy um, land that's not necessarily being used. 
they organize together in order to secure the land rights or the housing rights. They have done great work in terms of um, they got a slum act revoked a few years ago where basically um, the state could just clear people off of so-called slums without any justification. All of this is happening right now, and I can't necessarily quantify or qualify exactly the character, but something is boiling. We have close to 50% of youth are unemployed. We have some of the highest un unemployment rates. We have some of the highest, you know, femicide and gender violence um, in the world, not just on the continent. So we are in a challenging moment, but there are still institutions that represent or groups that represent um, working class organization and who are doing the day to day work of mobilizing people around questions such as socialism. So I, I, in listening to you, I'm recalling we often tend to think of apartheid as, as simply being circumscribed within the geographical boundaries of South Africa when in effect many of the frontline states provided labor for those mines. Uh, Post-apartheid, um, South African capital uh, flowed north. I've been in Mozambique uh, and to see how they were buying up uh, areas on beachfronts and, and, and so forth. Uh, although South Africa is with the second largest economy uh, relative to Nigeria, it might be the more efficient, a sophisticated capitalist economy. I'm just wondering now how the working class movements inside the geographical boundaries of South Africa, like the Shack Dwellers movement, are the NUMSA organizing, is also flowing uh, back with labor that has, in, the, in the, the north of South Africa, that has always been connected uh, to that South African front, and how the issues of socialism, the party in Zambia, for example, are we seeing interconnections rather than just looking at these as nationalistic, isolated spots. Uh, what is the flow of, of labor uh, in its expressions of women, of youth, LGBTQT and the like, uh, with the flow of capital, uh, which is now multiracial, multicultural, in a way that it was not uh, prior to uh, the defeat of, of uh, apartheid in South Africa? Sure. Uh, so, the big challenge is that I think not only South Africans, but um, various uh, countries on the continent face right now is because of the kind of really challenging economic situation and deep inequalities. For example, there's been a high rise in xenophobic violence, xenophobic discourse that largely is, you know, certain upper working class or middle class groups who are punting that, you know, why are these foreigners coming into our country to quote unquote, take our jobs, which if you look at the stats, it's less than a percent of, of the kind of organized labor force are actually, or um, working employed in the formal sector are actually foreign Africans. And so there's been this huge affront coming from various groups who again, are in many ways just serving the elite's interests because they basically push working class people to attack other working class people. But groups like like NUMSA, like Abashalibasim um, Jondolo are all part of our kind of Pan-Africanism today network. And we've been trying over the last six, seven years 
to build collective campaigns around various issues. But what we've been trying to do is bring these groups together. So we've had many um, moments in the last few years where Zambian, Zimbabwean trade unionists, those fighting in Swaziland, those who work in Lesotho, in the Unite, which is one of the biggest, it is the biggest union there because they have an industry of 20,000 textile workers who are a part of them. Um, we've been trying to also connect with, of course, you know, peasant groups in Mozambique, in um, Tanzania, trying to connect with, you know, unemployed students in Congo, who, you know, Congo has one of the highest unemployment rates where young people are basically, you know, left to their own devices. And uh, I think the main thing for us is we need to bring people who are leading those kinds of working class struggles into the same room. We need to develop collective works, collective campaigns, as well as support the different campaigns, support Zambia's call for, you know, bicycles. A couple, it was last year or the year before, the Zambian Socialist Party was calling, hey, if we need bicycles, if we can get some bicycles, we can get people to the places they need to get to, we can organize better, we can be more efficient in our campaign against um, capitalism in that region. And so I think just Education has played a massive role in that. Exchange has played a massive role in that, as well as even though conferences are no supplement for the day-to-day -day work of having to call somebody in Zambia and say, hey, listen, I heard this happened in the news. What can we do for you? Those conferences, such as the last one that we had that uh, we actually, I, I met you there for the first time in Winneba in 2018, we had one of the biggest gatherings and biggest gatherings by grassroots movements of their own accord in history. But what was really great about it is what came out of it was this clear agreement that we can't build any kind of reform or nice capitalism. We actually have to build a pan-African socialist um, agenda. Uh, and again, we are doing that through education, organization, interaction, and various media and media and communications work in order to you know intervene in the battle of ideas but i think that for us is the primary way we're trying to build those bridges and that historic um destiny that we already have because the same minds that you know exploited south african laborers that divided the country that built the basis for industrial capitalism made the same kind of use of mozambican labor Malawian labor, Zimbabwean labor, Zambian labor. And so right now, actually, NUMSA, they have a strong focus right now on um, organizational rights, particularly in mining, because from um, 2016 or so, they started to organize not only across the supply chain, so not just in metal work, but the cleaners who might work at the same factory, the suppliers of food, the transport systems, but now also in various key sectors in society, such as mining, such as services. And I think that really does help for people to make that click that there's something structural going on that no amount of reform is going to address. You referenced Pan-Africanism. One of the developments from the European transatlantic slave trade uh, was the millions and millions of uh, enslaved uh, men, women, uh, young people uh, brought to the Americas with the emergence of the new world, the really flowering of um, uh, the maturation of capitalism, the intersection of a racialized uh, capitalism and where these Africans for the most part 
uh, were the major uh, labor force, a commodified labor force with indigenous populations here. Uh, and then with the post-anti-colonial, well, even during the period of colonialism and post-colonialism, the outward migrations of Africans into Europe, uh, Amil Cabral being one of the classic examples, a great poet, great soccer player, uh, who took that knowledge from the colonial universities and returned home to engage uh, in revolutionary warfare against the Portuguese. And we see now the brain drain of Africa um, to Australia, uh, to Canada, uh, to the United States, uh, to Western Europe. Uh, and we see now multiple generations of these African descendants becoming citizens in these places, but looking back to Africa, sometimes very romantically, but also many of them explicitly inhabiting neo-capitalist perspectives of development in Africa. The African Union has emerged with its discussion of the sixth region uh, to involve some of these African descendants in the development of, of Africa, uh, having very little to say about the struggles of African descendants. For example, uh, in Colombia, uh, where um, Afro-Colombians have been uh, the victims of tremendous day-to-day -day violence, or uh, in the case of Brazil, where over half the population uh, is of, of self-identified uh, Afro-descendants and mixed race who suffer incarceration and young men are being slaughtered. And the point is that many people inhabit the rubric of Pan-Africanism, um, of uh, this romance with Africa. And I'm wondering to what extent are progressive and socialist movements in contemporary Africa also extending into the diaspora, uh, into Europe, and these discourses and this competition uh, for whether we will have a working class uh, socialist transformation uh, development uh, with th these African descendants or whether they will simply be captured into these neoliberal developmental paradigms, um, these hierarchies in which uh, elites like Ramaphosa having come out of the Communist Party emerge uh, as a head of state. Uh, but really is objectively not uh, dealing with working class needs. If I'm honest, in terms of the popular understanding of the relationship between the diaspora, a lot of people I think would draw on almost more recent experiences. So those who have to leave their countries to go work elsewhere in the world, those for the young people of Africa would be considered the kind of basis for the diaspora initially. So for example, Cape Verde in the last 20 years, most Cape Verdeans live outside of the country um, or of the island um, because they have to pursue other work opportunities. And so I think the first would be, we, we do need to have, a, a, I think a more critical and more involved discussion about our relationship with Afro-descendants of longer, the long durée. Um, and that of course comes out of people's processes and people's interactive processes, you know, but it is also up to us to make the connections and make the connections real tangible and identify, uh, identifiably common. So for example, um, I, I was at the People's Summit um, that happened in June earlier this year in Los Angeles where okay. different uh, social movements and different groups who stand for peace, who stand against the organization of um, uh, American states, I was going to say of African states, of American states, gathered together to say no to the kind of imperialist um, hegemonic approach that the U.S. is trying to organize the Americas. And one of the groups I met with was BAJI, the Black Alliance for Just Immigration, right? And one of the things that was really remarkable is talking to their membership was the fact that 
we need to talk about how migrants leaving Africa arrive there and how you know we create those connections to explain not only why but to organize in Africa in a way that connects to how you are organizing because of course they have practical ways where they're trying to make sure that people aren't incarcerated that there's support that people uh, are not treated fairly by the laws in, in the USA but we need to move beyond our bread and butter to see how these are kind of global strings that are pulling us all in the same direction and I think this goes for things like um uh if let me say ah I was at a, another summit it just so happened June was very busy I was also at the peace summit in Spain where in Madrid different um peace activists were gathering from across Europe to protest the NATO summit and whilst at the event it was so troubling but illuminating that on it was held on a Saturday the week before the NATO summit. There were a lot of discussions, there was a march on the Sunday, but on the Friday there were around 2,000 African migrants who were trying to cross from Meia in north of Morocco, which is actually a Spanish territory or enclave, still a colony of sorts, and who were treated with brute violence. I think it was around 40 is the, the current estimate of people, around 45 people who were killed in the process, who right now don't have any justice and many many more who are injured who are not going to get any justice but there was a march straight after this big demonstration against nato um where we started to make these connections and people were like oh do you understand that the normalization of global militarization is part and parcel of this form of border policing that is pushing the african border lower and lower and leaving the, the migration question that the EU refuses to deal with, even though they're the cause of many of it through their different um, trade policies and neo-colonial policies, but are leaving border policing or border control and the migrant question to foreign militaries like the US's militaries that span across the Sahel and West Africa, as well as the French military, as well as now the Moroccan who are working on behalf of the Spanish state, essentially. So I know this is a, a long-winded way of going about it, but part of, I think, our ability to connect around questions of repatriation, of the sixth region and the diaspora, is to understand how the connections are still living. Because in many ways, I think to when we create these regions, it's almost like it's a region of its own with its own things, but not necessarily it's living and organic connections that endure today and how we need to connect those various struggles so that when Afro-Colombians are calling for peace and are trying to, um, you know, also at the same time call for socialism, then that says something to us that the process there requires an alternative that capitalism can't deal with and that relates to what's happening in our own, own struggles. Very good. Let us conclude with what is now being called by some as the um, the movement to recolonize Africa. We have NATO, as you have described now, becoming a, actually should be described as NATO US or US NATO. I'm not sure which one to put into front, but clearly uh, the, the US is, is the active military guarantor 
uh, of the expansion of, of NATO into Latin America and the Caribbean, uh, into uh, Africa now. Um, and we have the emergence of, of, a, of a multipolar world, which Tricontinental has been uh, a very uh, central uh, resource in helping in political education to understand these new dynamics going on in the world with uh, the role of China in developmental projects in Africa, uh, Russia uh, in uh, developmental projects uh, in, in Africa, the rise of the BRICS countries, Brazil, Russia, India, China. Um, how do you see this so-called scramble for Africa from the point of view of African agency, uh, both at the level of those who are involved uh, in uh, the preservation of capitalism, but as well as those who are in progressive social movements and in socialist formations? Oh, no, that's a big one. It's, it's a huge challenge, and I'm going to try in a short amount of time to speak to some of the elements that you've raised, maybe not all of them, um, but at Tricontinental, we have many materials that cover it in case I don't. Excellent. Um, but, okay, firstly, I think let's talk about this Ukraine moment and what it's kind of opened up is, aside from the fact that, you know, we saw the racist treatment of African students, uh, we saw Zelensky's failed attempt to court African heads of state, he tried to hold a meeting with the members of the African Union and only four people showed up, basically, showing that 93% of the African Union heads of states rejected having a meeting. We saw how most African uh, nations rejected uh, the UN resolution for sanctions against Russia. And we saw that even with the first UN resolution uh, with the Ukraine war, about almost 50% of African heads of state, either in one way or another, basically didn't vote yes and didn't favor the US NATO or Western NATO position, either through abstention or not participating, or, I mean, Eritrea was the only one to actually say outright no. But we are seeing a shift, even at the level of states who don't necessarily have the people's interests of Africa at heart at heart, but who understand that war will only worsen the economic situation, the political situation in our countries. And we've already seen this with the wheat prices, where it's around 33 low-income African countries who rely on at least one-third of their wheat coming from Ukraine and Russia combined. So, you know, Africans are sh or African heads of state, at minimum, are showing some form of a sentiment of non-alignment, which could be an opportunity for um, not only for us to show how the West does not show the way, the US is not the example we want to follow, but is also creating space for us to define our own um, agenda and our own path, if you will. But part of that is also the rise of China, where in the last two decades, we've seen this massive rise of China where if you look at uh, purchasing parity, uh, the purchasing parity index is the global economic leader. But China, of course, has also in the last 20 years rapidly increased its relationship with the African continent, where it is our largest uh, bilateral trader with the continent at around, I think it's now 254 billion, up 35% from 2020 to 2021, which is relatively you know, remarkable considering the COVID pandemic. But the important thing I think to raise about China is there's been a lot of you know, anti-China sentiment that comes from the West and is replicated in the media in Africa. 
just before the Forum on China-Africa Co Cooperation Forum met in November of 2021, where basically many heads of states who have an agreement with China, they come to the same room and they develop various proposals on future collaboration in terms of trade, exchange, education, green technology, etc. And in that moment, a month before this meeting met, there was this wild report going viral across Africa about how China was going to seize Uganda's airport, international airport in Tebe. And it was completely false. It was completely had no factual basis. When people examined it, uh, the likes of Vijay Prashad, uh, the director of Tricon, has written a couple of articles about it. When he looked at the agreement, they saw that there was no seizure of property. But every time China is increasing its relationship with Africa, we find these stories coming up that have no factual basis. But why I raise this is to say that in many ways, China has given us different options, different possibilities, different choices. And whether or not you agree with China and its politics, that is something that Africa hasn't had prior to this moment. We've had to go begging for loans from Western entities, from Western financial institutions that then tell us what we need to do with our economies, that direct our policies, not even, you know, subtly, overtly say you need to privatize, you need to stop spending so much on social services. This is in a continent where at least 50% of African countries have been servicing their debts in the last, like, three, four decades, more than they spend on other social goods. In six of the most populous countries, Zambia included, they service, they pay more to debt servicing than they do to education and various forms of social spending. So with China on the scene, even though that there are one or two countries that have levels of high loan agreements, these are still loan agreements with China, that is, um, these are still relatively small compared to the Western agreements, one. They also are different because they don't have any conditionalities. They have longer maturity periods. They have lower interest rates, as well as some have been, you know, tied to infrastructural projects and various other forms that, again, give Africans options. When we have more options, we can better leverage the kinds of um, proposals we want to push forward on our own accord. And I think that is a sentiment that's resonating more and more. But ultimately, it is up to our working class struggles and organizations to shift the mandate nationally, because ultimately, sadly, bodies like the African Union are made up of heads of state. It's not a mass movement based organization. That is why we are trying to build these kinds of grassroots, mass based international forms of organization amongst the working class, because ultimately we aren't represented at the level of African Union and other regional state and governmental bodies. Well, Michaela, Ando, Eskog, I, I want to thank you. Uh, Africa has loomed large in the history of the imagination and the practices of humankind. Uh, but your engagement with us today on A New World Coming, I think, really helps us to understand why Africa reemerges large in a progressive and transformative future. Uh, I wonder if there's any last word of how we can be in solidarity, those of us, not just African descendants, but people who are earnestly moved by humanistic interests, uh, people who are 
formally see themselves as progressives, and certainly those who are looking to overcome a neoliberal capitalism and to develop plural expressions of socialism. How can we be in more solidarity uh, with these progressive and socialist developments on the continent of Africa? Sure, I think I can think of at least three tasks. Is one, the main thing that I, everyone needs to start doing is you have to educate yourself about the African continent. This is, you know, a huge continent, 1.4 billion. We have some of the richest mineral resources. We have some of the most, as you said, diverse cultures, histories, etc. But one is to just get a kind of basic understanding of the vastness of the continent and the various um, ways in which the people have to struggle uh, for better situation. Two is we need to find the kind of nodes of connection. And for example, we applaud the work of, let's say, Code Pink, the women's led peace organization, because building work that would demilitarize and push for the demilitarization of the biggest, you know, institutional polluter um, is the US military, of the biggest foreign military presence of the world is the US with over 29 bases in African countries and is expanding in more, you know, um, clandestine ways across the continent. Having that kind of work and trying to see the connections between them is a, is a good point of entry because that's work you're already doing, but making the connections of how does my work in immigrant justice relate to the African continent? How does my work on demilitarization and peace relate to the struggles on the African continent? So making those connections is the second thing. And then I think the third thing is around, I guess it is about providing platforms like you've provided for me to in Africans to engage with other groups across the world. Just providing a platform where we're able to share our struggles and collectively think about the work that needs to be done in order to collectively build a process for work that will be mutually beneficial is I think part of the work that, that we're struggling with now and that we want to advance, especially in the International People's Assembly um, where we have over 200 organizations who are trying to build these collective practices, not only to unify us, but to produce outcomes that support one another. And, uh, you know, even as, as, as uh, Ernesto Che Guevara said, uh, you know, we need to produce many Vietnams. We need to find where the sites of concentrated struggle are and support those as well. Mikel Ando Escog, I really want to thank you for an extraordinary political education that you provided for us about uh, Africa and uh, this first part of the 21st century, uh, what is going on inside the continent of Africa and Africa's relationship to what is going on in the emergence of a multipolar world. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to talk to you and I'm looking forward to the future work where we can collaborate and conspire for a socialist world. Thank you so much for tuning in for this interview with James Early and Mikaela Nanda Erskog, who's an editor and researcher with the Tricontinental Institute for Social Research and a member of the International People's Assembly. 
In this conversation, Mika provides a brief history of decolonization across the continent and how Africans in each regional context have imagined a future for self-determination. They also discuss the legacy of exploitation and extraction in African countries and how the latest rise in economic crisis is forcing people to consider alternatives to traditional neoliberal development projects. They also discuss how the emergence of a multipolar world presents African countries with different options for investment and international collaboration. Finally, Michaela talks about her work building out a network of social movements, trade unions, and political parties and organizations across Africa as part of the International People's Assembly, and how the histories of national liberation movements and socialist projects leave a clear historical path towards rejecting the current capitalist system that for so long has exploited the continent and its resources. Subscribe to our YouTube channel to watch future events and episodes, and if you haven't yet, Go to politicaleducation.peoplesforum.org to check out relevant concepts, figures, and readings for this conversation and other episodes of New World Coming. Thank you so much, and see you next time.